electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, just when you thought it might be safe to buy GE shares cratering today. The stock seeing its worst session in nearly a decade. Did any of our traders buy this dip? And speaking of carnage, the Bitcoin bloodbath rages on as the major cryptocurrencies crash today. So what is behind the big sell-off? The Bitcoin baller himself, Brian Kelly, has got some clues. And later, the president of Coinbase is back with a major announcement that will impact anyone who uses its platform and the entire crypto space as we know it. He will join us live. But first, we start off with the Fed to the rescue stock sinking at the open. But then... The Fed minutes came out and the message was simple. We got your back market. The dovish comments giving a big lift to tech in particular. So is this the return of the easy money trade and is the Fed put alive and well again? Guy. Yeah, well, it's all part of this pastiche. I hate to use the word, but it's all the time. But it's all the time. All the time. In the context of this conversation, because a few weeks ago on that Thursday before the jobs number, we had talked about. You know, a sort of a modest wage growth will be very bullish for the market. Don't fade it. And here we are now, some 110 or so S&P points higher. Now you got the Fed saying, you know what, a modest overshoot inflation will be helpful. Their words, not mine. Market interprets that as the Fed's not going to be your foe. It's going to be your ally this year. And the VIX tells you all you need to know. Pete can speak to this. We had a 1460 handle on the VIX, closed at 1260. VIX is telling you it's green lights from here. You were saying that the Fed put is back. Just when well, we thought yeah. that it was gone. Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, if, if, if it's not back, at the very least, the strike price has been moved up a little close to the market. We had a lot of Fed talk today about the, actually over the last couple of days, about the yield curve and how they're concerned that a flattening yield curve could be a signal that a recession is coming. Those weren't those exact their words, but that's what they were implying. And today, they were concerned about the flatness of the yield curve. So, if anything, the Fed has said to you, hey, we've got your back here. We're not going to raise rates and just crush this economy at this point in time. We're watching what we're doing. You guys are listening to a very different Fed than I am. I mean, are you you kidding me? Dovish today? Look, today's comments were were somewhat dovish, but everything I've heard from every Fed governor for the last three months, especially during the height of the market volatility, is that we actually think this is healthy. They looked at all the moves in the markets. They actually said this is probably. But Kashkari came out today and said he's watching the yield curve. But Kashkari is is one of the big doves, and he will fly away always as a dove. And to me, if you think that the Fed is going to move right now just because we actually see conditions tightening up, by the way, a stronger dollar is also a drag on things. So if you think about what the Fed's doing, conditions are tightening up. I do think they're aware of that. But if you think they're going to stop um, based upon the shape of the yield curve, I, I don't think they're going to do it here. Well, the market reaction was pretty clear in terms of what Very. we saw, right? Very. It was the trades that worked in the easy money days. Yes. Technology, for yep. one. Technology. Think of the, some of the financials actually turned around from being beaten up pretty good. And then you look at some of the semiconductor companies as well. I think I think what we really did see was that there is a put. And I've, I've never felt like it ever was left, gone, to be quite frankly with you guys. I, it feels like the Fed 
has our back. <laughs> They're going to be watching things. And I think because of that, it doesn't mean that we don't, we're not going to see some harsh moves to the downside at some points. But I think they are signaling they've got our back at this point in time. And because of that, it gave people the idea that, you know what, it's okay I, to be involved yeah. in the market. And, and, and you know, listen, in. if Kashkar is the dove, obviously he's out there using the signaling mechanism to say, hey, this is the extreme view, and you're going to move it back towards the center. But when Jay Palo took over, we were looking at a Fed that was willing to tolerate an awful lot more volatility. And that's not to say they're not willing to tolerate volatility now, but at the very least, they're recognizing guys, that their guys, actions the Fed, could have an impact on the economy. The Fed has a dual mandate, okay? They're focused on growth and they're focused on inflation. What's the part of this that's bothering them right now? They've got pretty good growth. They've got an inflation. Maybe it's not an issue, but they certainly have bubbling inflation. Commodities are at high since 2015. Two-year break-even inflation is over 2% now. Look at how tips are rallying. You going to tell me we don't have an inflation issue? You going to tell me that the Fed's just going to get in the back door? If you guys think that the Fed it's is going to stand in here in 2018 yeah. into 2019 like they did in 17, 16, and 15, they do uh, I'll sell that to you. They do that every single time. Do what? They, 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 do, they do the exact wrong thing every single time. When, when the economy gets weak because, let's say, oil goes up, what do they do? They get dovish. That weakens the dollar. Commodities go up. I mean, that's, that's their but playbook. But Fed policy is trailing market dynamics. That's by nature what they have to do. And by the way, I think the Fed's done a pretty good job over the last few years. This is the toughest part. This is unwinding the massive, you know, the, the, the largest global financial experiment in history. Uh, I talk about the ECB. Look what's going on across Europe. That, if anything, may be what's going to help those folks in the Fed put Let me ask you because, this. Because that's what we're seeing today. Two more that was rate hikes or three more rate hikes? I two think more we, rate we, hikes we, or three we've more got, rate hikes? We've got two, and then we've got a third that's about 40% priced in. And I tell you what, um, I don't think that they're... I don't think they're trading this day to day. I think these guys have a plan. I'd say it's two and it's data dependent right now. And that's uh, and they've told yes. us that. Yes, and so we, we, we know that aspect. To your point about volatility, though, let's be honest. The spike today in volatility with the market down close to 200 points or something like that, the spike was all the way up into the 14th. I mean, really? If we are in that big of a, a problem right now, I think volatility would not be trading where it is. And I think the market wouldn't be in this grinding pattern that we're in. Right. And then you see where the volatility actually ends up at the end of the day. And you say, you know what? This is the new norm in terms of volatility. Probably call it 12 to 15, something in that range. We used to be 16 to 19. Now we've shifted down. All this said, we can, we can pull apart the words of the Fed minutes till the kingdom come. Cows but come home, which I've never really understood Whatever that. Whatever expression they like they get lost lost apparently. Apparently. The bottom line is yeah. we are boxed in a situation where we're just a couple weeks, few weeks away from the next Fed meeting where they almost will certainly raise rates, right? Yeah, there will, will be a press conference, next and we will to. hear much more. So a few things, if, if I what may. What do we do? A couple things, real yeah. quick. Pete said, I, I thought in the beginning of the year the Fed put might have gone away. Maybe I was mistaken, but it felt like it was a different Fed to yeah. me, number one. Number two, love the glasses. On you, not BK. <laughs> and number three... <laughs> Dual mandate, I That's agree with Tim, except in my world, their dual mandate is to make sure the S&P goes higher and the Nasdaq goes higher. And I think that's what you saw today. That was, that was their mandate. And to be very clear, after the crisis, these guys were targeting 10% on unemployment, get below. They're charging 10,000 right, 10, on the Dow, get above that. We know that the Fed, and we, they arguably have market forces they won't admit to. But you, you can't tell me that they care about market valuations here. If anything, we've created an asset bubble. They wanted asset inflation. They've gotten it. If anything, they're trying to control something that looks like at least you're starting to get and be careful what you wish for.
Well, I, I listen. I, I don't. I want to be clear. I don't think that the Fed's done hiking or anything. All I think they did was backed off their language a bit. They saw the dollar rising. They saw the yield curve flattening. The dollar's and they back said, to December levels, Brian. Though I mean, I mean we've we, had were a we complaining rally. about it. We talk about it every single we day. Were, we why talk we about the dollar rally every day. When the dollar was at 94 in December, just five months ago, were, were people freaked out? I mean, bottom line is the dollar probably overshot to the downside. It's rallied back up here. I think at 94, 94 and a half, barring Italy completely falling off the map, I think stays around here. Now, granted, again, the breakdown in the euro today will affect the dollar because the dollar basket is 65% euro, and that's one of the dynamics that I think right, is what I can't But the Fed, the Fed is still right recognizing now. that move off the bottom. We've talked about that. Even companies have talked about that. So, I don't know. The market action to me tells me that the market liked the fact that the Fed was a little bit more dumb. And, and that's all the, really to me that is the ultimate arbiter. And real, real quickly, don't think energy prices didn't play into this. That inflation overshoot, they're looking at crude oil going from levels we talked about a year and a half ago to $75, and they're saying, you know what, we better address this in our language. All right. Well, despite the Fed's comments, the greenback hit another year-to-date high today. So, will Kane Dollar's super rally continue? What can you buy in this dollar strength? Let's go. It's a superhero. It's a real it's Superman. It's finally, we got one. Not that. that that blonde, blonde fake one. Uh, Robert Slimer, Fundstrat Global Advisors, joins us at the Plasma. Hey, Rob. Hey, Melissa. So the dollar's had a big move here, about 5% off the bottoms uh, in the last month or so. But really, when you take a look at it in the longer-term context, it's not really that big of a move. In fact, if you go back from a very long-term standpoint, it's, it's pretty hard to make a correlation between the direction of the dollar and the direction of the stock market. Sometimes the stock market goes up with a rising dollar, sometimes it doesn't. So I'd be very careful overstating how critical the move in the dollar is to the direction of the S&P. It probably affects things like small caps, more domestic companies, more uh, than the S&P itself. So, you know, we had this big breakdown uh, here uh, last year. It breaks the two-year downtrend, and we're getting back into all this resistance. That's a 200-week or four-year moving average. That's around 94.77. You have all this uh, resistance up here in that 95 level. So I think between 95, 96, it's going to be pretty tough for the dollar to move meaningfully higher in the short term. When we look at the momentum data, the RSI, it's starting to get to the upper end of the range. I think we're getting pretty close to a pause point. The dollar is not that significant an issue in my mind from a technical standpoint. In fact, when we start looking around the market, there's just an, a, a large number of names that are grinding through these big trading ranges and resolving to the upside. So we like what we see. We still like the small caps. They broke out last week. They're a little bit overbought short term. They should pull back. But again, this, this uh, relative performance is reversing a two-year downtrend. So we're still positive on, on small caps. We still want to own them. They make, a, make sense as being part of a broader portfolio. In terms of domestic themes, if we're worried about the dollar moving higher, the transports continue to look really good to us from a technical standpoint. You have this big move out of this trading range. Again, stock after stock moving through these first quarter trading ranges and resolving to the upside. We think that's still very bullish. And that relative performance is beginning to make a hook. So still very positive on the rails. We like the truckers. Transports in general act really well. And then in the discretionary space, when we look at domestic names, may not show particularly well on this chart, but TJX is coming out of this big, big trading range and resolving to the upside. So as a, a counter to some of your more cyclical names that are probably dollar sensitive, this still looks really good, and that relative strength is beginning to hook. So we like that as a long-term core leadership name. And the last name we take a look at, I thought that was TJX. Hang on here. I guess that's it. All right, my mistake. That's it. All right. Well, why don't you come on over, Rob? Bring them over. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
of stuff to talk about. Ryan will bring the chair in. As only got, Ryan can. Did you notice he got? He didn't get the Carol Burnett so nice that we Bob had Bob Slimer got, got the got Superman music. That's awesome. Oh, that's the Superman music. Super yeah. 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 yeah, it's good. Whatever. Superman. Okay. I thought it was Star Wars. Back to the conversation. In terms of these buys in a strong dollar environment, do you actually track them against the dollar, or is it simply that most of the revenues are domestic, and so it's your belief that they will do fine and the charts look good? That's exactly it. Okay. Charts are healthy on their own. I think that's always a starting point. We want to make sure we don't start looking for charts that are just potentially uh, correlated to the movements in the dollar. But the domestic themes act really well, and in fact, when we take the other side of that, if the dollar is going to pull back, a lot of these cyclicals have been hammered. And I think they're going to start to rebound as well. Generally, if we look at all the mess that we've had through the first quarter into April and May, a lot of noise, a lot of consolidation, a lot of volatility. But generally, stocks are starting to resolve out the uh, top end of those trading ranges. I think it's still a pretty healthy market. So, Robert, on your dollar chart, you had relative strength increasing. We're at pretty formidable resistance. Does that suggest maybe the dollar stalls here or goes a little bit lower? That's exactly what I think. I think we're getting close to the point, maybe another point or so, 95. A lot of resistance up here. You get a bit of a pullback. You probably get a rotation out of some of the small caps short term. But again, I still think this is a short term uh, issue. It's noise. And I think the small caps still look pretty healthy longer term. Rob, good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Rob Slimer, a fun strat. Tim, what did you do today? Um, I tell you what, I continue like the energy space. I've been slowly adding to a couple of the oil service names and also a Halliburton uh, over a Schlumberger. So I, I think energy still works. By the way, energy, which norm normally faces formidable uh, headwinds when the dollar rallies, has rallied almost 11% since the dollar made this move. That tells me we have a change of character in these underlying stocks. Pete. I've actually taken off a lot of energy recently because every, all the paper we've seen has been very, very short term. So I'm not negative on it, but everything I've seen has been very short term, so I took a lot of that off. And I actually added to a couple things. I thought Target today, with that sell-off, that was a great opportunity to buy it again. So I bought it around 71.25, somewhere in that range, because I completely disagree with the reaction, 6% down in that stock. And there's a couple other names that I actually added to as well, but that one stuck out to me most, just because I looked at it and I'm like, okay, earnings are up 9% year over year. They missed the number, but they were 9% year over year. The 28% on the digital. I went through the entire thing, mm -hmm. and I said, you know what? This is a company at 13 times earnings, $71. I think it's a gift. And that was a fast pitch, wasn't it? It was. It was. Guy? It's interesting. You had a similar move in Target about six months ago. Same yeah, thing. They released earnings. earnings. Stock mm -hmm. sold off. You talked about it being a mistake. Turned out to be right. I'm with Tim in the energy, though. Real quick. Think about how strong crude would be, but for this dollar. And the other thing that struck me for the first time in a while, underlying strength in biotech today. Speakers? Well, for me, I still like the chip stocks here. And I'll probably get like a giddy up or a high out silver. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever Pete says. Silver. How about that micron near 60, brother? Exactly, oh, right? Nice. So now you get, yeah. yep, wow. you get a dollar that's no longer rallying. You've got micron with nice momentum. That's a place I want to be. All right, coming giddy up. Giddy up. Giddy up. Yeah, nice. and high out silver. silver. <laughs> General Electric seeing its worst day in nearly a decade after comments from the CEO had investors hitting the panic button. We will tell you what he said. Plus, United's controversial decision to cancel the NRA discounts turned out to be a personal decision. Why? We've got a special report. And later, he is back. The Coinbase president is here with a major announcement that could send, that could send shockwaves across the crypto space. Some of it leaked out earlier today, but a key part did not, and you will only get it right here on Fast Money. So stay tuned, crypto fans and haters alike, by the way. We are live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Do not go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. They used to bring good things to life, and now GE only brings heartache to investors. Today was no exception. The stock having its worst day in nine years, tanking more than 7% after CEO John Flannery gave disappointing guidance and said he could not guarantee its dividend is safe. Leslie Picker is back at headquarters with the entire story. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. That's right. GE investors spooked by comments Flannery made at an industry conference earlier today. He said he did not expect to see any profit at GE's power business this year, profit growth this year, and declined to guarantee the company's 2019 dividend. Those comments, of course, setting the stock down more than 7%, posting their worst day since April 2009. And while there was a silver lining, Flannery did affirm GE's targets for 2018 profits and free cash flow. Much of Flannery's comments were focused on the power unit, which along with GE Capital are seen as beleaguered units within the company. When it comes to the power unit, Flannery told the conference GE's management team is focusing on what they can control, which included better operating execution and getting margins higher. The new unit's going to be tough. We're going to continue to focus what we can control. We're going to continue to drive costs down rapidly. And on the service side, we see uh, maybe some green shoots. So this is not going to be a quick fix, but there's, at the end of the day, long live assets here with intrinsic economic value. We're going to make the most of what, what we have there. Flannery repeated the phrase back to basics, back to basics several times, saying he's committed to reducing risk and creating more accountability within the business units, adding he'd be the first to say it's been a, quote, challenging first year since taking the helm, Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker with the latest on General Electric. It almost seems we are at this point in time where General Electric might be better off saying, hey, yeah. we're going to reduce the dividend drastically yeah. mm -hmm. right now to be safe, as opposed to letting Wall Street and investors guess about it. Yeah, You're I think an we've made that, yeah, I think we made that point on this show a couple times, which is, you know, truly rip the Band-Aid off and say, hey, nothing, nothing is set. And if you think about, though, people shouldn't, today's context of these comments should not catch people by surprise. The theme of this presentation was deleveraging and de-risking. Mm -hmm. And so why would you talk about absolutely paying a dividend in an environment where you're talking about deleveraging and de-risking? Why not keep all the options open? Look, I, I, a lot of problems with this company. Uh, I think sentiment maybe got too bullish yesterday. Uh, I think this reaction is too large. I'm not sure where the analyst is from. I apologize. But there's somebody on Monday that was saying, you know what, $11.5 price target, this is where it's going. I think this gentleman made his career on the back JP of... J.P. Morgan, I think it was. It was J.P. Morgan. Yeah. And we talked about it Monday. Tim's right. This shouldn't really be a surprise. We addressed Monday the fact that, you know what, 20 billion dollars in cost cuts they promised by i think february they're basically halfway there they have to do something and it could come in the form of a dividend cut so it i'm not i'm, not, I'm always surprised but i'm not saying this should come as a great surprise right. the options market signaling a dividend cut the the option markets are sig signaling this stock's going lower um i think the problems are the dividend and the debt when you look at the debt and you just continue to see just the, the sheer magnitude of it, I think it does give people a little bit of a feeling of, you know what, this is not the end yet. And I think that these fake moves to the upside are fooling people. I still think there's downside. We're seeing the 14 puts getting bought very, very large and even lower strikes than that. So in my mind, this stock is going lower and it'll be somewhere maybe single digits, but at least 10, 11. Digits. Yeah, listen, I think I'm more with Pete. I've tried to buy it a bunch of times and had my heart broken, so no more for BK. But I will buy it. I will buy it when Warren Buffett does. Well, I probably won't get the same deal that he does, but if it gets to single digits, we have all that debt, Warren Buffett's going to come in, get a nice sweetheart deal, then BK will be buying. Gross debt to GDP, to, to gross debt to EBITDA is somewhere around four and a half times. I think they're going to get to three and a half times by the end of this year. That will be very positive for the stock. 
All right, still ahead, traders are betting that one of the hottest tech stocks over the last year is about to plunge. We will give you the name and what can tell you what has them so nervous. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC First and Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. As European markets stumble, a key event could rattle investors. And here's a hint. Now's the time on sprockets when we dodge. We'll tell you why so many investors are on edge about tomorrow's Deutsche Bank shareholder meeting. Plus, He's back. Coinbase President Asif Herji, in an exclusive interview, will make an announcement that could rock the crypto world. And that's when Fast Money returns. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. It's like a scene from the Alfred Hitchcock horror film Psycho. The crypto carnage rages on and it has been an utter bloodbath since the recent highs hit in early May. Bitcoin Cash, Ripple, Litecoin, Ethereum, and Bitcoin getting completely slaughtered. So what is behind this move? Our crypto baller BK is over at the Plasma to break it down. BK. Yeah, hey, I would temper a bit of the uh, enthusiasm or negativity. This is kind of normal volatility for it, but we're going to talk about that in a bit. Crypto carnage. Why are we seeing a sell-off, let's call it? Number one, regulatory uncertainty once again. So yesterday we had the North American Security Association come out and do something called Operation Crypto Sweep, where they shut down a lot of really bad projects, and then they sent letters to a bunch of the exchanges just to gather information. This is exactly what we want regulators to doing, out doing it out there, fixing the problems, shutting down bad projects, and saying to the exchanges, hey, we have these rules that we need to follow by. This is the next step into the institutionalization of this market. So while it's uncertain now, I actually view that as somewhat of a positive. Lack of institutional investment. This is our if we build it, they will come moment. We have a custody solution coming out of Nomura last week. ICE announced that they're going to have a cryptocurrency exchange. We have multiple different banks, Goldman Sachs, opening up a trading desk. We're all ready. We're just waiting for those institutions to come. Until some, we see some sign of that, you're going to see a little bit of weakness. And then finally, what I mentioned at the top, the usual volatility. This is kind of normal trading for Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. Extremely volatile asset class. Makes you want to lose your lunch. I almost lost my lunch this morning but you know what this is the asset class that we're in so now let's just take a look at it and see where we are with Bitcoin go to the next one I wanted a three-year chart right so we can see this big spike up that we have but what are we doing here we've had this little bump and if I draw myself a trend line all the way back here look at what we're doing we are still in that three two to three year uptrend and right here at about 7400 7485 we have bounced right off of that trend line. Then if you draw another, a couple more of these, let's see if I can clear that up a bit. If you draw this line here and this line here, what does that look like? That looks like a wedge. We're off the bottom there. So for me, risk reward wise, not a bad time to get into Bitcoin. Hey, Brian, it's Tim. How are hey, you? Tim. Good job out there tonight. Hey, hey thanks. Question, give us some visibility into the entire cryptocurrency space, because most people can see and track what's going on in Bitcoin. There's been some concerns about Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash. How much is this a Bitcoin issue, or is this a bloodbath everywhere? So Bitcoin's still the big dog out there, and everything is still correlated with Bitcoin. It's still the way uh, that you get onboarded into this system. What is going to happen over the next couple days, or next couple weeks, actually, you're going to see other exchanges here in the U.S. start trading U.S. dollar pairs against other cryptocurrencies. So I would expect, as that trading expands, you'll see less dominance of Bitcoin and dominance, I mean, correlation to everything else, and onboarding into other cryptocurrencies.
All right. Thanks for that, BK. We want to move on in our crypto conversation. And one man intimately familiar with this sell-off is Asif Hirji, the president of Coinbase, the largest online crypto broker. It's also number 10 on the CNBC disruptor list. He joins us today from Las Vegas, where he is at a Credit Suisse private internet conference. Asif, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Melissa. Nice to be here. We want to get to your announcement, but first we want to talk about uh, this crypto sell-off. And what are you seeing amongst your client base right now in terms of trading activity? Is there still that sort of interest in crypto that we saw in the fourth quarter in terms of the trading volumes? Yeah, I think, that, look, the trading volumes, as we've talked about before, are highly correlated to where the asset prices are. When the asset prices are going up, there are more people trading crypto. When the asset prices are coming down, there's fewer people trading. But in terms of account opening and so on, we're still seeing very healthy volumes there. We're very happy with the way the business is going. Um, as your previous guest said, it's a volatile asset class. And so I, I, I personally am not surprised about the volatility. Uh, and I do think the, the issues that he identified as to some of the causes are, are right. The, the regulatory clarity being probably the biggest of, of the, the issues right now. So you operate an exchange, you operate a, a trading platform. I'm wondering, in terms of the, regula the regulatory uncertainty that you face, do you feel like it has increased yep. over the past three months or so or decreased? Have you gotten contacted more by regulators recently? <laughs> well, I, I think uh, we have been contacted more and we're, we're doing much more outreach um, and the clarity has not increased. I think the, the actions that, that have been taken to uh, you know, correct some of the fraudulent things that have been going on, and that's been very healthy for the industry, right? Um, I, I think that clarity, though, is needed, and I don't think we're close to that, unfortunately. Um, and so we're working very hard with many of the regulators, both here in the U.S. and, and abroad, as to what that constitutes. And you, you will know we talked about before, we have a very robust framework we use for how we think about assets to list on our exchange. Um, but with that, you know, we can't apply that unless there's some clarity around, is it a security, is it a, is it, is it a utility, et cetera. We, we feel that there are many, many projects out there which are, which are utilities and should be able to be listed. Um, and there's some that look like securities and, and need, need to be treated differently. But, but some clarity is what is, 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 the, is the starting point for being able to show any progress on that front. So would you say that that was the number one um, headwind in terms of, of adding assets yeah. to be traded on your platform? If you get clarity on that, the sure. floodgates open for you? Yeah, look, we, we, would, we would like to list as many assets as possible, right? I mean, it's in our interest, too. It's in our traders' interest, too. Uh, but we, we have taken the, the, the tack from the very beginning of being the easiest to use, most trusted. And part of being most trusted is being the most compliant. And so where there's uncertainty, we are not listing assets. And so that, that's why we list the four assets that we do list, because there is certainty around those. And as soon as there's more clarity around some of the other assets, we will list them uh, as long as they adhere to our framework. And so, again, we're working very closely with the regulators to try and get to a sensible regulation around this space. I mean, the analogy I use is, look, it's a, it's a bit like 5G. It's going to happen. And I think the U.S.'s question is, are we going to be at the forefront of that and shaping the way this space evolves, or are we going to let it evolve outside the U.S. and then be subject to whatever direction it takes there. I think it's far better for us to be at the leading edge of how it's going to evolve. And that, and that would argue for sensible regulation here sooner rather than later. Hey, Asif, it's Brian Kelly. So I'd, on that note, actually, one, one of my takeaways from Blockchain Week in New York last week was that all the adoption is happening in Asia, where we're getting a lot of development here in the U.S., yeah. but the consumer adoption is happening in Asia. Are you seeing that same phenomenon from your seat? Yeah, I, I think that's right. So, so let, let's talk about what, what adoption means. You know, there's two phases of any new technology. There's the invest phase and the utility phase. We're firmly in the invest phase of this technology, and it just happens to be investing. 
but the utility phase where people can actually transact in it, they can earn in it, uh, they can send it to each other, etc. Much more of that's happening in Asia, uh, and that's because they have more closed economies, they have more volatile uh, currencies that they deal with. It's just it, the the value proposition is much tighter. And so, if you look at our utility products, so we have uh, the Coinbase wallet, which you can you can store and send crypto with, or Earn, which is uh, which is a way to actually earn crypto. Those things those things have huge user bases, uh, m much of which is outside the U.S. Uh, as if. Um is there any iota of concern on your part that, that uh, regulators will come down and decide that something is a security um, versus a commodity and that would cause you to rethink what you have listed already on the platform? Look, I, I guess that there's a chance that that happens. I think, I think it's a very low chance. I, I, I really do believe the amount of dislocation that would cause, not just to us, but the entire crypto space, is going to be enormous, and I think it would just it would force a lot of projects and people, frankly, to move offshore. Um, and like I said, it's it's a bit to me it is a bit like 5G in that it is going to happen. And you know the choice in front of our regulators is do they want to be at the forefront of shaping how it's going to happen, or are they going to let others decide in the way in which it's going to evolve? And I think that would be dangerous if they let others decide. All right, we do want to get to uh, our Bitcoin alert. Asif, you've got a big announcement that you want to share. First on CNBC, some of it leaked earlier. That was the acquisition of Paradox. Some of it did not. So what is your announcement? Yeah. Yeah. So look, you know, I'll, I'll, you and others have always been asking us what, when, when and why um, can you not list more assets? Why can you not let us trade more things? And I'm delighted to announce two things today that are going to significantly increase the amount of assets that people can trade on Coinbase. The first is the launch of Coinbase Pro which is an active trading product, it's brand new. It is a set of institutional grade products and services as well as direct market access. Uh, it's a, an evolution of our GDAX platform, which we launched three years ago and has been super successful. But GDAX, we're now basically splitting in two. Um, the Coinbase institutional suite of products, which we announced last week, and Coinbase Pro now for the, institution, for the individual investor. And then secondly, we, we bought Paradex, which is the leading relay in the world. And this will allow you to trade literally hundreds and hundreds of tokens from your own wallet um, and we are, we're actually going to make that compliant with the U.S. rules. Uh, and so day one, it's going to be available for our international clients to trade uh, all these tokens. And then as soon as we can, we, will, we are going to turn it on in the U.S., where our U.S. customers can also trade all these tokens that they want. And so, you know, we're greatly increasing the number of things that you can trade. We're doing it in a compliant way. Um, and we're, we're just delighted that this, this, this will significantly enhance the proposition for our, our customers in terms of what they want to trade and how they want to trade it. But again, that goes back to the regulatory unclarity. You've got the token trading available yes. for international traders, but not available to the U.S. traders. Yeah, so, so we're, gonna, we're actually going to set this up where it's, in the U.S. it's going to be a bulletin board. So it will be, it, it's not an exchange, it doesn't look and act like an exchange, it's not a, it's not a matching engine, it's, an, it's a bulletin board. And in that way, we think, just like, just like bulletin boards work in equity markets, we will be able to offer these assets for people to be able to trade through a bulletin board mechanism um, in the U.S. and it'll be slightly different outside, but but we will allow you know we will get this to be compliant and we will allow our customers to have access to it uh, as soon as as soon as possible. Hey, it's, this is Brian Kelly again. So Paradex, as I understand it, is what we call a decentralized exchange, which essentially lets you to trade any type of uh, uh, token. So are you going to have particular tokens? Which ones will you start with? Will it be a basket? Yeah, so, so it's not, let me, please let me correct you, it's not a decentralized exchange. It's not an exchange in that sense. It is a, it is a bulletin board. 
Um, and that is, that is a very, it's a very, I'm, I'm being pedantic about it because the U.S. regulator views exchanges one way and bulletin boards another way. This is a bulletin board. And if it's, and if it's a bulletin board, you can actually offer a much broader suite of products there, uh, tokens if you want, uh, to trade. And so our hope would be that most of the tokens that are already trading on Paradex, we will, we will be able to, to offer in the U.S. in a compliant manner. All right, Asif, we're going to leave it there. It's always a pleasure having you on Fast. Great. Appreciate it. Asif Hirji of Coinbase. What do we, the announcement basically, right, going after the institutional investor, this is what Everyone's investors have for. been waiting for, right? The, the flood of money to come into this space. Well, again, I, I'm not sure how much of this has been deployed yet. I, I think there's a lot of people kicking the tires. There's a lot of big institutions that can't do anything until they have custody uh, laid out. Brian's talked about the different ingredients here. So um, I, I think guys like Coinbase are doing everything they can do to have the infrastructure and have the roads built. And, and I think, you know, the, the law and the trading here I can't speak to because, frankly, I think the people that are in the market right now are the ones that are doing all the activity. We haven't gotten a lot of new money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I asked a question about securities versus commodities because they had that discussion at Blockchain Week about Ether. Right. And Ethereum's already listed on the Coinbase platform. Ether, of, there, of all of those that are listed on Coinbase, could be Ether is probably the one that everybody has questions about. Right. Um, is there any concern in your view that Ether could be considered a security? At very the little. Day? Okay, very little. Ve very right. little, and here's why. I, listen, we can go back to the history of Ethereum and the initial coin offering and how that was done, but the way that Ether functions today, it truly is the fuel for the decentralized internet. So it, it no longer acts as a security. It acts just like a commodity, just like oil does. So I, I would be surprised if Ether became a security. All right, still ahead. United CEO Oscar Munoz telling investors his controversial decision to cancel the NRA discounts was, quote, personal. So what's that about? Should shareholders be upset? We'll have a special report. Plus, Deutsche Bank's moment of truth, the European bank facing a key test tomorrow that could send a shock through the market. We've got all the details. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The United Airlines CEO getting personal with the NRA. Phil LeBeau's in Chicago with all the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, this has to do with the uh, question that came up at today's annual meeting for United Airlines here in Chicago. There was a gentleman who brought up the fact that in February, United Airlines discontinued its discount for NRA, NRA members. This is a move that we also saw from, uh, from Delta Airlines uh, and a number of companies. And he said, look, you know, I think this was a, a liberal bias move. I'm paraphrasing there in terms of what uh, the person said. Oscar Munoz was point blank in saying, no, this was not some kind of a political statement that the company was making. He said it wasn't political. It was personal with regard to my family at United. We aren't here to make political conversation or strike political debate. We're here to serve our customers. What he meant by the fact that it was personal uh, at United is the fact that one of the victims of the Parkland shooting was the daughter of a United captain. He did not dwell on it for long. He simply said one of the victims was the daughter of a captain. This was a personal situation at United. So uh, that was the exchange. There was no back and forth between uh, the gentleman who asked the question uh, on behalf of uh, gun rights advocates, if you will, um, and Oscar Munoz. Oscar Munoz basically said, look, this wasn't a political statement. We're not here to make political statements. This was a decision that the board reached, and that's the end of the discussion as far as he's concerned. Any comments, Phil, about finding a new CFO? They're going to begin the search. Um, I shouldn't say begin the search. They're actually, it's becoming quite active, I would imagine, here relatively soon. Um, they've got Jerry Laterman in as acting CFO. He was in that job uh, before the previous CEO 
uh, CFO was hired, uh, Andrew Levy. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something here in the, in the next few months uh, in terms of uh, a new CFO for United. All right, Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. Um, a couple of aspects to the story. We can discuss United. There's plenty to discuss with just the company itself. And we can also discuss this, this decision by Oscar Munoz. To say that it was a personal decision, it, our hearts go out to the victims of the Parkland shooting. Our hearts go out to that captain at United. At the same time, do you want a CEO to make a personal decision, right, one on behalf of shareholders and on behalf of the company. Well, maybe in the case of this CEO, with the issues that United has gone through and, and showing the compassion here, I, I, I get where you're going with this, which is that we should not be ruling with our heart. We should be ruling with what's in the best interest of shareholders uh, as a group. But I, I think in this case, I actually commend it. And, and, you know, I think United also, by the way, Mr. Munoz, have to do some digging to get back in the good graces of the public. Now, this isn't everybody's public view. It happens to be mine. I mean, in March, right, they had the lost dog and the dead dog. They've lost a CFO recently. Um, their stock had been an underperformer. A couple things. So, so is he trying to make amends for the, the errors of six months ago with this decision? I'm, I hear what Tim is saying. I disagree. He's got a whole board of directors and, and shareholders to make those types of decisions. It's not his. He doesn't own the company. It's not Munoz Air. If it was, he could do whatever he wants, in my opinion. Stock is underperformed. Trades at the same valuation as Delta. I'd rather own Delta for a number of different mm. reasons probably because of the things we just discussed. I've been frustrated with the very top, Mr. Munoz himself, yeah. time and time again, and I think this is just another example. I agree with Guy. I mean, you have to sit down. Why is the board there with you? I mean, to make decisions like this. there should be no well, personal well, decisions. Well, I don't think he should Come make on. it just personal from the top. I think he could sit down with the board and say, look, this is where this what, is what I think, this is what we should do. And then he could say it was a board decision. It was a board but hold decision. On. Is that a board decision for a CEO to say, I'm not giving one particular group? doesn't matter whether it's the NRA or whether it's school teachers. I don't want to give them a discount. But you know it's going to be a political statement, a even if it is a personal statement. So. You know it's a political statement at the end of the day, no matter That's what. What do you think? That's what he's doing. He's, he's you know, by the way, isn't that what a CEO has to do? I mean, I think a CEO has to he has to make decisions and but navigate decision, the best political. But a decision for like this is big enough that he has to go in front of the board and pitch it to them and sell it. And if he is sells it, it right, they're all going to be on board with if it. If it's such a no-brainer, the right. board would say yes. Right. I like Delta better than United. I do too. I'd like Delta as the stock better than United, and I like to tra travel, fly them better. United is my last choice of airlines, and I don't think that I'm the only one who thinks that. And that, to me, is the problem with the stock. Airlines are going higher. Still ahead. It is one of the hottest stocks over the last year, but traders made some pretty big bets today that it could soon sell off. We will give you the name, tell you what has them so nervous. Plus, what is wrong with Deutsche Bank? The beam down bank down more than 30% this year. So what does it need to do to turn itself around? We've got the details. More Fast Money straight ahead. Deutsche Bank has a very simple problem. It doesn't make money. And that's a pretty shocking statement at this point, 10 years after the crisis. I think Deutsche, five years from now, will be a significantly smaller company. That's my guess. That was legendary fund manager Steve Eisman of the Big Short raising some questions about Deutsche Bank on Squawk Box last Thursday, going so far as to say that the bank is likely to and should downsize. Now Deutsche is one of the largest banks in Europe. It's also one of the most troubled. Shares continuing uh, the stock's long decline today on reports that the bank is looking to cut up to 10,000 jobs. This ahead of the company's annual shareholder meeting in Frankfurt tomorrow. So what can we expect 
Mike Santoli in the house. a very special Fast Money yeah. appearance with some of the biggest questions on shareholders' minds going into this meeting. Mike. It was right on my way home. They flagged me <laughs> down. I said, sure, I'll stop by. I'll do this. Uh, well, Steve Eisman's been right, as you suggested. Melissa, look at this chart. This is year to date. Uh, if there's one positive thing about this, well, two positive things. One, very steady decline. You can't see it here, but it did perk up today when those reports came out. There were going to be 10,000 job cuts, so maybe the market has an appetite for hearing tomorrow. There's going to be a very radical restructuring. I'd also point out the other good news is that uh, the rest of the European banking sector hasn't been great, but it certainly has not been following. So it doesn't look like it's a systemic issue just yet. Seems specific to Deutsche Bank. So what is the street? What do investors want to hear? Well, here's three things, at least the magnitude of those uh, cost cuts, the job cuts, just exactly how much this bank is going to shrink. And then investment banking in particular, there were reports today as well from Bloomberg that, that Deutsche Bank is going to really radically cut back how much it does in the way of equities and other investment banking activities in other countries outside of Germany. By the way, I remember 20 years ago, almost to the day, when Deutsche Bank bought Bankers Trust for $11 billion. Deutsche Bank's total market cap right now, 20 years later, is $25 billion. So it shows you not a great strategy. And then the strategy for financial stability. S&P has the bank on negative watch for a potential downgrade. Going to give a decision by the end of this month. And that's going to be very important because this bank really doesn't make any money right now. If they lose their funding advantage, if they basically can't kind of operate at a, at a decent uh, cost structure in terms of what they pay for funds, it's going to be an issue. So those are the three things, guys. I don't know how the stock is primed exactly to perform ahead of it, but I think this is a pretty much a high suspense moment for the bank. This is unprecedented. What? Should we invite oh, Mike over? What? Not even All right, a question. Come on over, Santoli. Why Ryan will bring the chair. Come on imagine. in, Ryan. Why wouldn't we? To raise the question. Well, he's got to get home, he said. Ryan, that's why yeah, well, you made about Ryan bringing that thing in. Next good to see you, bro. All right. You're a stud. This is a bank that we've been talking about for a very, very, very yeah. long time on yeah. this show. Guy in particular. I got two words for Mike. Yeah. And, I, and, and it's not going to phrase this a question. I'm just going to blurt. Okay. Systemic risk. Yeah. Yes. Yes or no? Well, I would suggest that the market is not overly concerned about systemic risk. Now, if it folded, if it fell apart, if they had to unwind Deutsche Bank, sure, then you have systemic risk. But I don't think you're seeing evidence of kind of the chain reaction of capital market stress that you would expect to see throughout either European banks and certainly not U.S. banks yet. So I think that's the uh, maybe silver lining. Mike, what's the collateral damage for these guys to get out of the, the U.S. equity business altogether? Because I, I don't think it's worth the cost savings, even though they're not making money here. Uh, collateral damage meeting to the overall franchise. To the IB franchise, to, to the exactly. Because yeah, I think, I don't, and, I don't, and the major capital restructuring costs attached to that. Right. It probably means a radical redefinition of what the, the bank's footprint is going to be, right? It's really reducing its global ambitions, but going back to really way back roots of being kind of a domestic retail German bank. And of course, the big knock on, on Deutsche, as opposed to some of the Swiss banks, for example, is not really huge in wealth management. Right. There's not the other stable uh, businesses there. So, Mike, the other problem we had back in 2016 when Deutsche went below $10 was these things called these cocoa bonds, which right. is what they had to issue back after the crisis. Are you hearing anybody worried about that? Because what happens is you have to short the stock to hedge right. the bonds. I haven't really heard that uh, being a theme this time around, maybe because it's not that much of an issue, maybe because... You know, they had the near-death experience with them, and we kind of got through it. So I don't know what we're talking about in terms of potential capital raise or, or anything else. But, you know, if you read the sell-side research on Deutsche Bank, I mean, you talk <laughs> about, like, 
low single digits return on tangible equity wow. next year and in 22. I mean, it's really not operating at a level that's earning its cost of capital. So I don't know exactly how dramatic tomorrow's news has to be to change that story. I mean, this new CEO, Christian Seving, he's got his work cut out for him. That's yes. for sure. Well, Although, say, but again, the bar is low, though. I mean, if you it. think yeah, about that's it. that's true. And, and I, I, here's what I think about European banks who have underperformed, you know, EUFN, European Bank ETF mm -hmm. against XLF, is underperformed by 1,700 basis points year over year. I think if you see rates go higher in Europe, I think European banks do very well. We've so, Quickly, yes. we've talked about if this was a U.S. bank, we'd talk about it a lot more than we do now. And mm -hmm. BK has said this, and I'll reiterate it. This is the biggest derivatives book in history. Something's going on there that I don't know. I'm no expert on anything, but I will tell you the price. And look at Italian debt. I mean, maybe there's a, there's a relationship uh, yes, there. Yes, or oh, volatile, maybe the short vol. Who knows, but something bad. Something stinks in DB. You know, but what, what struck me about the Steve Eisman interview was he didn't bring that up. It's just, they just don't make money. The cost, the cost, you know, yeah. structure is just right. not right. We were there that day. Exactly, yeah. Melissa. We yeah. were there. He's got a game you. seven tonight. Mike's not the same uh, one. Not the Steve same Eisenman. one. Oh. Coming up, despite a huge rally this year in what <laughs> Huey Lewis and the news preach, some traders are betting it isn't hip to be square. We've got the details. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's head back to the Credit Suisse private internet conference out in Las Vegas where some of the biggest leaders in tech are gathering. Our very own Dan Nathan, a consultant at Credit Suisse, joins us now with some key themes. So uh, what's the buzz, Dan? Hey, Mel. Hey, guys. Well, listen, you know, we started off the day with actually two of the Disruptor 50 list, uh, one of the co-founders of Lyft uh, and, uh, or excuse me, the current CEO, Anthony Noto, of SoFi. And these are two companies that are obviously disrupting some kind of age-old thought processes about things like Lyft disrupting car ownership. And SoFi, you know, they want to turn the banking business upside down, and they're making some big moves to do it. It sounds like Anthony Noda is the guy to do it. So it's a lot of really interesting conversation about disrupting existing business models. Amidst all this conversation, though, you're also seeing some pretty interesting activity, options activity in Square. What did you see? Yeah, so, you know, Anthony Noto told yesterday that so far, uh, told Julia that they're thinking about adding cryptocurrency um, to their platform. That's something that we know that Jack Dorsey did with Square. And there was some options activity today in Square. Um, you know, put volume was about one and a half times that of calls. Interesting trade that caught my eye when the right. stock was trading 54.70. There was a buyer of the June 52 half okay. puts. Dan, thanks. Options action 530 Friday. Cheers. Final trade up next. for the final trade, Pete. I love what I'm seeing in EWZ, Brazil. Giddy up. Tim. I'm staying in energy. Halliburton keeps it going. H-A-L. BK. Uh, check out the miners, not the Bitcoin kind, but the gold oh. kind, GDX. E. Go Tampa Bay tonight and check out AMD decoupling from crypto. Uh -huh. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks that. for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.